Welcome to Kesed. I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, my name's Danny, and I am one of the pastors I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, you picked a great Sunday to visit. This, uh, this is a, a brand new series we're doing to start the new year, and we're just going to call it Church. And uh, I only have one fairly simple request as we dive in, and that is that you bring uh, everything that you're experiencing when I say that word, that you recognize that uh, not everybody sees it the same way that you do, and that you're willing to, 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 to walk into it. I recognize in a room like this that uh, there's people with all kinds of different experiences when it comes to church. If you were like me, I, I said last service, by the way, we can take a quick vote on this. I said last service, if you're like me and you were born in a pew, it's like a statement. I had a bunch of people be like, gross. <laughs> I just, I don't, but if you were like, you went to church, like, you know, three days after you were born, and laid in a pew. Is that better? Is that more clarifying for you guys? The nine o'clockers just lit me up over that one. But, or if this is the first time you've ever been to church in your life and you're only here because a pretty girl invited you, we'll take all of it. We'll take all of it. This is what this place is supposed to be about. And it's not supposed to be clever or creative or, or anything other than just allowing everyone in the space to feel like they can play a part in their spiritual journey and in this house. And so that's what the, that's what the series is going to, uh, to be about. So bring it all, amen? Okay, good, good. Um, so let's start off with this. I do a, a little bit of, of church coaching, a little bit of pastoral coaching. Uh, I spend time with guys, especially guys that wanna plant in the Northwest, because I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, it's pretty widely accepted that the Northwest is the hardest place to plant a church. Uh, because of just the value systems and the worldviews and all those sorts of things. I had a guy tell me one time, it's the DNA. And I said, what does that mean? And he goes, well, everybody else stopped at the mountains. But then when everybody started trailblazing, hence the basketball team, into the Northwest, those people are like people who are just scrappy and they just don't listen to authority and they just do what they want. That's why they came to the frontier in the first place. And we still carry those genetics. And I was like, I don't know about that, but, but okay. This place... Is, uh, is, is special, and so people have asked about it. And so when I spend time with churches, and I'm gonna be a little bit general here, uh, the first thing I try to kind of figure out is what am I working with? Like, like what, is, what is strong about the church? And there's usually two things that you can categorize almost every church in within about five minutes. They're either gonna be hyper-traditional, meaning they're holding fast to, uh, to the traditions of their forefathers and foremothers and all the people before them, or they are hyper-trendy, meaning they are, they are including the neighbors and the people, and they're speaking in a way that people walk by and go, okay, I get that. And I've noticed over the years that, uh, that those churches tend to have some pretty incredible blind spots. And that's what this series is going to hope to unpack a little bit. Here's what I'm trying to say if I was to sum it all up. Church is messy. Whether you are hyper-traditional and you're like, man, if we could just sing more hymns. Or you're hyper-trendy and you're like, when are they going to turn the bass up? <laughs> a bunch of people are mutually offended right now. Some people are like, please don't bring back the hymns, man. And a bunch of people are like, the bass isn't up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. You've just figured out which one you are. Church is messy, and in this series, we're not going to pretend otherwise. Here's a couple ways that church is messy. No punches pulled, just, just being authentic as people who exist in a community. 
Church is often used to both love and leave people at the same time. Like people actually end up loving people out of relationship and say it's all being done in the name of Jesus. I love you, therefore I can't do any life with you because some of the stuff you know, that you participate in is just too much. So I love you, so don't call me again. <laughs> yeah, this has all happened to many of us in this room. Church also uh, often is used to both heal and damage people at the same time. This is when you start to call out that, that log in somebody else's eye right? Or the plank in somebody else's eye, the speck, and you don't see the log or the plank in your own eye. This is this idea of just living sort of this hypocritical kind of space. We do this all the time. As a matter of fact, we teach it to the generations below us how to do it better than we did. And we gather people who are like-minded. We gather people who are hive-minded. And everybody thinks the same about everything. And then we know supposedly that we're on the right track. Church is also, often, is used to both teach and torment people. It happens. We uh, did a series on the Bible a while back, and we opened it up with a really, <laughs> a question that I still, uh, people still to this day remind me of. We put it on the screen. We're not going to do it today because this isn't in my notes, so it's for whoever's in this room right now that needs it. But when it comes to the Bible, I just have a simple question. What if you're reading it wrong? Because there's like 300 some odd denominations right now in the United States alone. All of them saying that they are the ones who finally figured it out. What if you're reading it wrong? Do you realize how many things that, that from 100 years ago we don't even address anymore in the Bible that should be addressed? And do you realize how many things from 100 years ago they, address, they didn't address in the Bible that we do now? What if there's no spaces for us to say, Holy Spirit, work with us. Holy Spirit, show fruit from this book, from this engagement. And what if we all recognize that we all have worldviews that we got to wrestle with? Uh, last service, I talked about a friend of mine who's actually here in this service, so this will be a little bit more awkward. Um, talking about kind of a fun debate we've had for many, many years. My friend will tell you right to your face and will not allow any Harry Potter in his home whatsoever because of the magic. And yet he has six lightsabers up in his room <laughs> filled with Star Wars paraphernalia. <laughs> and we will sit in this sort of honest debate about, about stuff that clicks with us and stuff that doesn't. And it, here's the thing. My wife has a, has a Harry Potter sweater on today. He might say that's a sin issue in her life and she needs to work that out. But later tonight, he will be dueling with his son with his lightsabers. Because it's midichlorians, it's science, it's the force, it's not magic. I will agree, uh, Nathan and I, my friend, we do agree that, that in a battle between Skywalker and Potter, Potter's not coming out of that thing alive, though. I think we all know that, right? <laughs> right? We all know that. So I give him that. But the point is, we kind of approach Scripture that way, right? We're like, I connect with this verse, therefore it is. And I don't really understand this one or connect with this one, therefore it isn't. And then we build communities on it. And then we bring our friends and we convince them to think like us. Or if they don't think like us, we love them out of the community. And then we sit in our worldview until the next thing comes along. And then we battle up, armor up. And we live our lives that way all the time. It, I get it. I do it. This church series is, is going to challenge some of that. 
But the only way it works is if you bring your stuff. The only way it works is if you bring your doubt and your concerns and your fear, and if you're willing to really sit in it. And friends, bring your friends. Bring the, bring the most antagonistic friends you got. I'll take them. Because you know what? They might have something to say and maybe even something to teach. And how do we learn and grow together unless we create space for all of it? Because yes, church is messy, but I'm here to tell you right now, as a person who has dedicated his life to this messy institution, that church is also beautiful. The stuff that happens here behind the scenes, the stuff that happens here uh, during the, the outreach stuff, the ways that this church serves and gives and supports is beautiful. There's nothing else like it because it wasn't created by a man. It was created by God. I, I like this quote about the church. It says, God created the church to meet your five deepest needs. A purpose to live for, people to live with, principles to live by, a profession to live out, and power to live on. There is no other place on earth where you can find all five of these benefits in one place. This is what we're stewarding. I don't know if you realize that or not. We are stewards in a timeline 2,000 years after it started and, and will go on for however long God deems. And this entire church, everything you see here will be passed to the children in our nursery right now when their time is ready. That's the end game, just like it was passed to us and to them before them and so on. We are part of something very, very special. But I think for us to engage with it, we have to really sit and ask big questions about how it is God wants this community to be lived out. Over the years, I've come to hope that Kesset is neither hyper-traditional or hyper-trendy. As a matter of fact, I would say that that one of the reasons Kesed is, is starting to become something I never envisioned it to be, this, this uh, I don't even know what to call you guys right now. People are still trying to figure it out. But this, this place where multiple generations can sit in the same pew, I think it's because we're together focused. I think it's because people that are tradition focused are willing to give a little and people who want trendy are willing to give a little because we want to sit in the same pews with all three or four generations of our families. And what that simply means is that uh, nobody gets everything they want at Kesset. As a matter of fact, I'll make it official, because I believe this. The hard to pin down magic, or force, <laughs> the hard to pin down magic of Kesset lies in our communal understanding that the only thing we each have in common is the agreement that our church is never going to be enough of what we wish it was. It's never going to be enough of what you wish it was. And it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be what you want it to be. It's supposed to be what the Holy Spirit wants it to be. And the Holy Spirit wants to meet the needs of all the people that are seeking after him, which means you probably have to set down some stuff you find important. Some of it's going to be tradition. You're just, it's just going to bother you that we don't do it this way. And some of it's going to be trendy. You're going to be like, why are they still sitting in that space? It's like the difference between the pews and the chairs. This place was filled with pews when we bought it. It was difficult to fill it with chairs because a lot of people were like, but that's not, say it, church. Other people want to know why we don't have this or have that or why aren't we doing more of this. You guys aren't really trendy enough. I don't know if you're really thinking forward. Like where's, you know, you should have at least half your church filled with 20-year-olds. What? 
I love 20-year-olds, but I don't want half the church filled with 20-year-olds. I need, I need me some old people, like some chill, serving, show up, been there, right? They got some spiritual scars. I need those people. 20-year-olds, I love 20-year-olds. I, I want our church to be as filled as God wants. But 20-year-olds, they, they haven't experienced some of these black guys that, that those of us who've lived a little bit longer have. And you know what I have found about 20-year-olds too? They don't just want to go to a church full of 20-year-olds. They want to go full with people who are also fighters and scrappy and have survived and have been married longer than four years and actually made it kind of work. That's what they want. And so the whole dynamic just gets flips on it, flipped on its head when all of a sudden it becomes about togetherness. And if you can deal with that, you will fit in perfectly here. But if you can't, but instead want to control, change, and conform everyone else so they can see the world more like you, I'd encourage you to pack it up and find a church that enjoys the brand of your moral superiority you're selling because we are not going to buy it here. We are stewards of what his movement and what he's doing. And we're following him. We're not following you. And we're not following fads. And we're not following those who came before us, by the way. I don't know if you realize that. We aren't following the generation before us. We're following Jesus. We aren't following the generation ahead of us and their trends. We're following Jesus. But what we're going to see here in just a second is Jesus really likes the blending of those two things. But it's not easy. And that's exactly why we're going to talk about it. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. I would encourage you, by the way, bring your Bibles. Uh, you can highlight them. You, they, they're going to get ripped and torn and all these other things, but bring them. If you use an app, you can do that as well. Although... Um, there's going to be a chance that I think you're probably texting. So just, uh, <laughs> for those who don't have a Bible, we have verses on the screens uh, so you can follow along. But what I want to do is I want to spend some time listening to how Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the bringer of the church and the good news, right? Who, he's the good news, uh, introduces this unique and ever-developing institution to the world. In other words, church is Christ's idea. So let's listen to him and how he describes it. Matthew chapter 16, it says that, Jesus is traveling. Quite simple, first verse. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? There's massive context just inside this verse. This is one of the issues with often how people read the Bible is they read it and they go, great, Jesus asked the question. No, stop, time out. First off, let's divide the verse in half. The first half, 13a, chapter 16, verse 13, just the first half. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, here's what we know. Just previously, Jesus and his disciples had left a city where just about all of the religious community had come out and told him he's a false teacher. They had proclaimed him as such. They had deemed him too much and not, not too trendy, if you will, and not traditional enough. And so Jesus leaves. And he takes his disciples and he travels. And he usually goes from one kind of populated area to another. But this time, Jesus goes a different route. And I've always wondered who tells Jesus, like, Jesus, you might be lost. The next city's over this way. Why are you heading over towards Mount Hermon? Probably nobody. So they travel along and they're like, the only thing out here is Caesarea Philippi. We, we are not going to Caesarea Philippi, are we? And word starts to spread that it looks like that's where they're headed. And this is why this is so important, because Caesarea Philippi is a uniquely intense pagan temple. At this place, there rose a great hill 
in which there was a deep cavern. And in that cavern was a huge whirlpool, constantly swirling. Tradition has it that this was the headwaters of the Jordan River and where they started. And so a temple was built to this place because these people figured that this must be the birthplace of Pan, the god of nature. And so they built a temple to it, to this god right here, half man, half goat. And they would sacrifice to him at this temple. They would take a goat up to the whirlpool and they would put it in the water. And if the goat got sucked down, they knew Pan was happy and their lands were going to be fertile that year. But if the goat got kicked out, they knew then that Pan was unhappy and they should plan accordingly. At this place, there was a massive temple. This is what it would look like back in the day. Multiple places where people could come and have conversations about the different gods along with Pan who were represented here. And they would debate and they would argue. As a matter of fact, you might even say that this is most likely one of the trendiest places around. New thinking, new ways, new gods. New explanations to old problems. And so people would come in droves, but not Jewish people. I mean, this is like a Harry Potter convention for my friend. <laughs> He's in the front row right here, so this isn't going to go away, this service. This is like, this is not good, right? This is not good. And Jesus rolls in and he's the Messiah just being proclaimed a false teacher. And next thing you know, it's like, hey, you know, false teacher going to where there's clearly false gods just doesn't really help the rebel overall God, Jesus. But he does. And he walks around like he would. And they look at each of the different gods of the area. He looks at Zeus. He looks at Hermes. And he looks, of course, at Pan, and he looks at the whirlpool. And then he turns around to them from this place and says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's some, that is some context. Like they just had a half hour tour of the capital of paganism. And then Jesus is like, all right, boys, who am I? Now, this is an important thing for you to understand. First, I want you to recognize that Jesus was not afraid to acknowledge or even work within the trends of his time. He was willing to hold space anywhere with anyone. And the best place he could go to, to reveal fully who he was was at the backdrop of all the gods that were trying to be worshipped of the day. But this is a trendy place. And this is a difficult place. And yet this is the place that Jesus went so he says, who do you say I am? This is an interesting question now when you set it against long-standing Jewish tradition of the time. For not a lot of people realize that Jesus up to this point hadn't revealed who he was. It wasn't just because he was keeping it a secret. It was also because of the tradition. You see, so, uh, Israel had had so many false uh, messiahs, so many by this time that it became against rabbinic tradition and almost law for anyone to proclaim they are the messiah. But it was not against the law to ask others who they thought the Messiah might be. So Jesus doesn't, sitting in this trendy place, he doesn't go, all right, guys, see all this stuff? Not real. I'm going to go ahead and break the law real quick and let you know I'm the Messiah. The first thing they would have done was go, oh, he just broke the, uh, you can't do that. So Jesus doesn't do that. He goes to the place and he asks the question, who do you think I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, verse 14. 
And others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he says to them, drilling down even a little bit deeper, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter finally replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus did not come out to this place and call himself the Messiah until the disciples came out and said it. Then he confirmed it. Because along with being trendy and present, Jesus also honored the traditions of his time. What are are we supposed to do with that? It's as if, as William Barclay said, it is as if Jesus deliberately set himself against the background of the world's religions in all their history and splendor and demanded to be compared to them and to have the verdict given in his favor. Jesus Christ is still asking his church today, who do you say I am? And you know what our response usually is? Well, this is what my service experience says you are. This is what my, my podcast uh, Uh, presenter says you are. Here's what the books I'm reading say you are. Here's, Here's how I serve in the community. All very important things. It's important what the world says Jesus is. But I think Jesus is trying to get past that down to those who would found this concept of church here in just a moment and asking them, but who do you say that I am? This is pulling them in, not just together with one another, but with him. That's what this is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be traditional. It's not supposed to be trendy. It's supposed to be together first with Christ, then with each other. But it doesn't work unless you're authentic and bring your pain, your struggle, your theology, your misunderstandings, your experience, your wisdom, your love, your gentleness, and actually proclaim who Jesus is. And some of you, you're apathetic. That's awesome. It's still an answer. Bro, you're not gonna get away with being like, I'm just not gonna engage. You did engage by crossing your arms and looking away from me right now. It's all good. This is a space for you to do that. I welcome it. But the reality is we aren't going to brand Kessid, put it in a bottle and then sell it to the world because that's not what church is. And I'm here to tell you again, and I've said it a few times, I'm getting better at saying it less. I am not gonna be the brand of this church. It's not gonna happen. It's just not going to happen because I, I, I won't be able to hold it. Jesus has to be the only brand of this church. He has to be the lead pastor and the visioneer and the, the one who drives and carries just like he does here because that's what he's created. I don't want to create something with you. I just want to be a part of what Jesus is doing and steward it till the next generation comes. And then I want to be another old person probably sitting in pews because they'll come back trendy. And I'll be like, why aren't there chairs? They're so much more comfortable. And all the young people will be like, pews are where it's at. Hurt for the Lord. And I'll be like, this stinks. And I'll be like, why is the bass not up? And they'll be like, it's trendy to have no bass. And I'll be like, ah! And I won't get what I want and I'll love it. Because I want whatever Jesus is going to bring. One additional piece of information regarding Caesarea Philippi. This place was also widely believed to be the entrance to the underworld. The whirlpool was an entrance. It was an actual gateway, so they thought, to the next place. Considering that and knowing they are standing in front of this place, 
Consider the words of Christ as he continues on after that answer. This is the very first time, by the way, very first time that Christ ever once mentions church and the very first time that church is used in the Bible. Listen carefully. He answers Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And look at his verbiage next. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is literally Jesus standing at the, at the world's gateway to the other world saying, nope, no gateway, not real, I'm real. I'm the answer, and I'm gonna give the keys to the church in order to unlock this gateway of relationship with Christ and invite people into what actually transforms and brings wholeness to their stories. That's the very first time the church is introduced to the whole world in all of scripture. And Jesus does it in this place, in the least expected place, not with God followers at the temple and a huge crowd singing worship, but instead at the most antagonistic place to the church, Caesarea Philippi, a temple dedicated to a pagan God and everyone like him. I want you to note that the introduction of what we're doing now today, the church runs parallel to Jesus blending traditional observances with trendy representations of what people thought they needed. He brought it all together. Jesus is saying all these false gods that you've been placing your hope in are dead, but I'm living. He's saying you are seeking a gateway to the next place, but I am it. And what I build will last. Here's a picture of Caesarea Philippi today. It was burned to the ground in 700 AD with almost every single piece of the temple torn down and hauled away. There was an earthquake that crushed most of the cave. You can't, there is no whirlpool now. But the church is still here, folks. The church is still being and developing and growing and failing and hurting and all those other things. But it is still here. It is still alive. And I believe you are called to be a part of it. Because the church is unkillable. Because it was made by the one who defeated death and offers you and offers me that same eternal life. But here's the problem. You and I, we make excuses. Even after an incredible sermon like this one, you're still making excuses. <laughs> you got reasons. Some of them are valid. Some of them are really valid, actually. Like, like, like I would have the same excuses you had if I lived out some of the story that you've had to to live out. But some of them aren't valid. And they're just you wanting to avoid. But I can tell you what both of those spaces, what brings healing to both of them, is coming together with other people and being known. With your valid and, and not valid arguments. With your hurt and the hurt, by the way, as a person who's grown up in church, and the hurt that I've caused, or maybe if you grew up in church, you know you caused in other people. Church is messy. 
But church is also really beautiful. And I believe in my heart of hearts and my soul of souls that God is taking this place somewhere else, but it's not going to be better singing or, 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 or a bigger building or, or better preaching. That stuff is, it doesn't matter. What matters are people being willing to come together and know one another. And the only way that's going to happen is if you are willing to be known first by Christ. It's the only way. For he will cover everything, everything in redemption. And you will suddenly find yourself not living a brand new life, not having a brand new house, not working a brand new job, not even in a brand new marriage. Some of you are like, I'm out. I was excited up until now, but now I'm just. <laughs> no, you may find yourself still living with the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi. But what you will find is Jesus in that space saying, I will hand you the keys to a kingdom that you will build. And all the other things will fade away. I think some of us need some stuff to fade away. I, I need some stuff in my life to fade away but I need people around me because I think God wants me to not just share my heart and my soul only with him. I think he wants me with those keys to share the healing he's brought to my life with you, but I need your healing in return and you need each other's healing and on and on and on we go, but our excuses are always there. C.S. Lewis said this about excuses. It's my closing quote. As I've already said, the church is faulty. But that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. In the same way, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men and women into Christ, to make them little Christ. And if they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermon, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. There's a lot that's gonna happen, I believe, with this church over the next few years. And throughout the series, the same question is gonna be asked, will you participate? Will you hold your traditions and your desire for the trendy loosely? Will you ask big questions, not just of the leadership or, or the kingdom or even of God, but of yourself? And will you listen to tiny whispers of the Holy Spirit, of course, but also people in your life maybe for a while who've been giving you quiet warnings about some stuff in your story that's ruling you. That's what this place is supposed to be. And I believe that's where God's going to take it. Uh, a couple months ago, Chandra showed me a song, and I loved it. And I loved it so much, I, uh, I pretty much built a series out of it. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and they're going to they're gonna play this song for us, but they're not gonna perform it for you. Instead, what I'm gonna do in a moment is I'm gonna have you stand up, I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna ask you to listen to the song, run through the song, and then make this song the anthem of the series. We'll probably sing it a few times in there. And the song's called Build Your Church. And it's not about Kesed, by the way. 
It's about he who brought the keys to the kingdom and about what we are called to steward. And it's about all the people yet to know him through you and through your story, even the darkest bits. God will use it. He will redeem it. He will restore it all. He promises it when he loves you. Will you stand? Let's, uh, let's pray and prepare for this time of worship. Lord, we thank you. We sit in reception of you. I feel God like as a community, we are, we are proclaiming that you hold the keys, that you are the divine leader of this movement you started so long ago. And so God, we rest alongside your vision, not our own. God, I have excuses, reasons why where you wanna take this place could be too much, reasons why I don't wanna bring my whole self to it, but Lord, you know all those reasons and you have also put people in my life that walk with me through my own season of discovery for why I do and behave how I do. And so Lord, I just ask for a, I guess just a spirit in the room of maybe of repentance, Lord, for the things we've hidden from you and from ourselves, for the patterns that are ruling us. I ask for a spirit, God, of grace as we recognize that those things do not define us. They do not, they do not determine. They are not definitive. You, Lord, you are the one who defines me. You are the one who determines us. You are the one. And so God, we worship you. We ask for an unleashing upon this room, an unleashing upon the, the gifts and the, the talents and the, the forgiveness and the, the refurbishment, all that we are needed, God, in this community to be who you've called us to be. We ask, God, that we would be spirit-led not man-led, not trendy, not traditional, just together with your spirit and one another, travelers in this world, worshiping along the way. And so God, I proclaim, I proclaim in Jesus' name, this place for you. I'm so grateful that you let us be a part of what you're already doing. May you take us to the next place in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.
Build it from the ground up, cause we're your church. Come on, church. Build. 